You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. everyone and welcome to episode 197 of the meet the farmers podcast with me ben eagle today we're heading to cambridgeshire to meet grower calixta killander who founded flourish in 2017 which focuses on producing unusual produce for chefs initially a market garden calixta's enterprise has now grown to include fruits vegetables herbs heritage grains salads and flowers on 56 acres her ambition is to produce nutrient-dense food and supply directly to her customers, as well as create a truly regenerative farm that goes beyond most people's expectations. Flourish was built on horsepower, with Calixta's two Comtois horses, Bill and Ben, doing all the farm's fieldwork from ploughing to cultivating, muck spreading to weeding until 2020. They are now in retirement. But Calixta's journey towards a life on the land did not start in eastern England, but in the United States, where she spent six and a half years learning and honing her craft. Today, we're going to learn a little more about that story. Calixta, welcome to Meet the Farmers. It's really great having you on. I've been excited for this all day, and I'm, I'm so grateful for you coming on as well, because especially because you had such a super early start this morning. So uh, yeah, thank you for that. And, and how's your week going generally? Great. I'm very, very happy to be here. So thank you so much. Um, it's been a good week. It's very spring-like weather. So lots of rain, intermittent sunshine. So typical spring. But yeah, it's been a good week so far. Well, it's funny that, isn't it? I was having that conversation um, with, uh, with, with, with a dairy farmer this morning on, um, on the basis. Actually, I think in some ways we've just forgotten what April is like. This is just April, isn't yeah. it? We've just got yeah. so used to that dry period. But actually, this is normal. Yeah, I know. I think... You know, it's it's difficult being outside when it is so wet and muddy, but I'm always just very grateful because we've been through a couple of years of such dry springs and dry weather overall. So, yeah, I can't complain about the rain at all. Now, you grow a lot of different crops, all harvested to order. So, but I'm really interested in how that diversity has grown over time and also how you decide what you're actually going to put in the ground. Um, well, this we're coming into into the sixth season that we've been farming here at Flourish. And I think that over the years, we've definitely evolved a little bit in terms of our crop offering. I think initially, um, I've always just personally really liked bizarre, wonderful things. I mean, pouring through these really unusual seed catalogs from all over the world is sort of like my idea of absolute heaven. And um, I like the challenge of doing different things. I like the just the aesthetics of beautiful, unusual things growing together. So I think sort of initially that's where the beginnings of it came from. But now we're really lucky. We have a great customer base that really trusts what we grow. And we also have sort of learned each year a little bit more what works where we are um, and what works in our soil and when is best for those crops. So we're sort of every year honing our craft a little bit more. But it's just fun to sort of every season have a few new things to try see how they go if they are successful and there's demand for them kind of increase in size um and it also goes to the same about things that don't work out you know we've yeah. tried hard um i'd say like an example of that would be you know radishes and baby turnips like people want them but we just can't 
grow enough to the right quality so those are one things that we've decided that we're we're not doing anymore okay and, and i assume as well as uh different crops you you experiment with different varieties as well has, has that changed much much through yeah. the seasons it, i mean a little bit i think we've sort of learned to specialize in a few things so um for example peppers and i mean peppers are sort of one of my great passions <laughs> and i just love growing the weirdest peppers from all over the world and so um you know every year we do more more sort of pea-sized chilies and sort of incredible sort of goat horn type peppers from Italy and just a vast range um and so it's been fun to kind of do more discover more and try out more and then there's some things that we're you know like for example our wheats where we've, we've done a lot more experimentation and figured out actually there's a bit more demand for a few of them so maybe we won't do some some and will focus more on others and it's just I think that's one thing that's been a real privilege about being here and about having such a direct link to our customers is that we have a lot of freedom to play and to experiment and then be able to have an outlet for things whereas maybe other farmers might struggle with that if they don't have for example a chef who would absolutely love some sort of weird and wonderful pea to go on top of a dish. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the heritage grains and perhaps the the challenges that you found of, of, of either establishment or, or, or on the other side, on the marketing side as well? So the grain part of what we do is sort of a collaboration between um, myself and Heron Holmes, who is uh, just a complete whiz when it comes to wheat. Um, and there's no way that we would be doing wheat if it weren't for the sort of uh, combination of us working together. I think that the, the biggest challenge, without a doubt, has been um, the, the machinery and the equipment side because we don't have um, sort of large scale, um, you know, arable machinery. So we've been doing it on sort of very old fashioned things and the grain yeah. handling as well. I mean, it's been kind of a nightmare trying to handle, you know, grain with like sucker blowers and like old vintage equipment we've got from like the Cheffins orchard down the road. Um, of course you've got Cheffins down the road, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, I know it's dangerous it's dangerous because you go there and you're like oh so I really want that and you know we've got a got a whole back but we picked up you know pieces of junk and put them back in the auction a year later a wonderful thing is that because we work with chefs we work directly with them we work directly with bakeries we have got an, an outlet for it in a market and that's been fantastic and over the years um we've, this is our third year growing wheat we've definitely sort of grown more of an appetite in our customer base which is amazing but of course it's difficult for people because baking with heritage grains is very different to other kinds of wheat and and for our customers who are commercial bakers whether that's in a restaurant or a bakery mm. it's you know it's really a commitment from their side and also a, a big learning curve to learn to work with these different grains and the different wheats that we grow um, and it's also really um, been a good lesson for us in learning you know I'm personally not a baker and know very little about it but working with people who are willing to sort of inform us so that we can then inform other customers more about yeah. that side of things but it's really amazing because the, the grain is in the sort of big picture of the farm a really important piece because we're trying to build here a full diet farm where we grow all the possible crops that will grow in our climate and grow them together on one farm so that they work sort of symbiotically in a rotation and sort of in all of their kind of strengths and weaknesses and give us more resilience and of course grain is and and flour and bread are the staples of our culture in so many ways and, yeah. and of our food system 
And so for us, even though the, the, the wheat has been very challenging and it's certainly not economically viable, to be honest, <laughs> okay. um, in its own enterprise at the moment, it's still something that we're really, really cherishing that we're doing and continuing to do it and trying to grow it and learn and evolve. Um, because we see it as being very important. And and obviously here in Cambridgeshire, we are in the sort of brain basin of the country. We're surrounded by large scale arable production. And so we want to keep, you know, it's it's good land for grain and we want to keep that as part of the farm. It's just sort of for us gaining more skills and understanding and and also helping our customers learn more as well. Yeah. Just talking of your location, you're obviously fairly near Cambridge and you're, you're fairly near London as well how much yeah. does that help help in terms of sales massively our farm is very unique especially in its size um because which again for for an arable farm that the acreage we're doing isn't very big but for for the produce that and the flowers and the veg it's very large at least it feels very large for us it's a lot to handle mm. but in, with the idea of being able to sell directly like that direct link to our customer base is just the heart of what we do and without our amazing chefs and the restaurants that we work with, we wouldn't be here. There's without a doubt because we're an hour away. So it's easy for us to do our deliveries. We, we handle all of the sales, all the logistics, everything to every single individual customer ourselves. So we're, you know, an hour from London. So when we, you know, it's, it's an easy, it's not easy, but it's an easier delivery route in the sense that it's, it's possible and it's attainable from where we are. And I think the other side of it is that because of where we are, it's also very easy for our customers to build more of a relationship with us because every week we have different restaurants coming out to the farm, joining us for a day, getting, getting a farm tour, learning about our growing methods, about the different crops we have coming up, having meetings about menu development and crop development and how we can work more, more together. And there's, again, no way that we could build such close relationships with the people that we're supplying if we were you know even two hours away it would be just that much more of a stretch to yeah. get to get to um have that close tie this episode is being supported by our primary sponsor a plant rural why did i want to collaborate with a plant rural well having got to know them their team shares my passion for giving a voice to farmers and we are both driven to raise the profile of farming voices to a wider audience so it seemed quite a good fit quite frankly together we will be able to do a lot more a plan rural do a lot of work on social media themselves sharing farming accounts and farming stories they have a rural community blog which shares farmers experiences and they also support a growing number of initiatives that champion uk farmers including this podcast so a big thank you to a plan rural for supporting meet the farmers Let's talk a little bit about, more about you and, and understanding how you came into this. T tell me a little bit more about your life growing up. And because I mean, when I was doing the research for this, it was because is it is it is it a family farm? With there's family family links, or did you have some sort yeah. of family family link with with farming and growing? Yeah. So I grew up on a family farm, but it, I, I was very sort of separate from the actual farming and had absolutely no interest in it as a child. And obviously, growing up in a rural location, you know, I played outside and my mum had an amazing garden with loads of flowers and she'd always like tell me growing up you know homegrown strawberries taste the best and I always believe yeah. that yeah. and I really do think they do <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> um, I agree but, but yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but I think sort of part of that kind of really idyllic you know nature-based childhood definitely had a big influence but I mean, when I left school, initially I did some work in art restoration. I was sort of more, I mean, I kind of, to be honest, was a little bit lost and didn't really know what I wanted to do. It 
was when I um, did a trip to India, actually, that I sort of really sort of struck me the big problems of how humans interact with nature and things like seeing so much waste and poverty. And again, I guess growing up in the UK, you're kind of separate. You don't see those things as apparently. And it, and it really sort of like drove me to want to do something to do with nature and yeah. the environment. Um, and I wanted to sort of have a academic background. I really like thought I might want to do farming, but wanted to go to school for it, as it were. And I couldn't find anywhere in the UK or in Europe that was sort of like an environmentally or sustainable based course that wasn't like, you know, an agricultural college that had like a core, you know, one unit on organics. Um, but I found an amazing um, university in the States that accepted my application because okay. they wanted international students. And so I ended up I'm sure, going I'm sure to... that's not just, it's probably just why. <laughs> I'm sure it was. They just wanted some diversity in their mix, I'm sure. But um, anyway, it was the most amazing place to go because not only was it, did it have an, a great sort of academic foundation for everything from soil science to running farm business, etc. But also there was a, a farm and other aspects. I actually also did a dual degree in sustainable forest management and they had like a forestry operation at the university as well. So okay. to have a practical outlet along with the theoretical and academic was super valuable and from there I just fell in love with the states I fell in love with the farming community over there and decided to stay on and worked on several different farms in different areas of the country learning from their models and from what they were doing and just totally being absorbed and I just became I don't know, fanatical, basically, about organic farming, regenerative farming. You know, there's so many different words for it. And I guess yeah. over there, they call it more sustainable farming. But it was sort of really over there that my my passion kind of grew. Yeah. Were you in Hawaii for a bit, did I read? Yeah. Yeah, I did um, a stint on a farm that was growing. The cash crops were coffee, macadamia nuts and cacao. Yeah. Um, and it was fascinating growing in a... Or, Firstly, picking coffee is such hard graft. I don't think I will ever drink a cup of coffee again and yeah. not really appreciate what it's like yeah. picking coffee under a full-body mosquito net suit. Um, it was intense, but again, super valuable experience. And, and also learning there, because it was on the dry side of the big island, uh, where water is like... that. You think of, of Hawaii as being super tropical, and there are aspects of it that are very wet. But being on a dry yeah a place where water is the most precious resource and learning about how they manage water in the soil and how they manage water on the farm when it's so limited and it was mm. such a fascinating depth you know delving into sort of yeah water which again I feel like now we're seeing more of it in the UK as being a problem but previously I'd, I'd never even really considered it being a problem over here yeah so six years goes by or six and a half years yeah um, why did you come back to the UK? Um, it's such a strange series of events, actually. So I I hadn't been back to the UK very much while I was over there because I just loved America and loved my life there very much. Um, and it was difficult to kind of make time to leave, leave a farm and come back. But I did manage to come back for a Christmas. And okay. um, when I was... When I came back, a, a friend said, oh, you should go meet this guy in Cornwall who has working horses. And at the time, I was on an amazing farm in Massachusetts. It was 150 acres and it was all run with working horses. We had a big vegetable operation. They were growing um, 
pastured livestock, grains, all sorts of amazing things. And so I was really into the idea of how you use working horses in a sort of commercial farm system at the time. Yeah. And I went to visit this amazing man in Cornwall and he um, was lovely and wonderful and actually gave me his horses because oh, wow. he had been moved. I know it's sort of, when I put it in words, it really doesn't sort of justify how incredible it was. Um, but it was, you know, very clearly a once in a lifetime opportunity, you know, getting a team of working horses that were ready for work, that had the experience, let alone having them for free was just I just knew I had to do it, even though I was, you know, all set up in the States and living there and had a great job and happy life. So I, that's basically what the main pull was that I knew that I had to start somewhere. <laughs> and so um, I ended up going back, sort of finishing my work commitment, saying my goodbyes and gathering all my stuff. Um, and the one thing was that I couldn't find any machinery in the UK that was suitable for like actual farming, you know, as the old odd plow, but nothing that was actually suitable for a commercial operation. So I spent, um, I was introduced by one of my amazing um, mentors, Jim, to a community of Amish people who live in Sugar Creek, Ohio. And I toured the equipment shops and met a load of amazing farmers out there who, um, you know, all doing incredibly well with their horse operated um, farms and bought a load of secondhand equipment that I loaded into a shipping container and then sent back to the UK. And so then wow. basically we just, just, just the, the horses arrived, the container arrived and we just sort of started to get set up and get going really. I love that story. It's almost got, um, almost got sort of echoes of war horse behind it, which is like, know, these are your horses. They're meant to be yours. I know Bill and Ben I knew it. it's just it's uh yeah it was amazing and I'm so even now like I'm so grateful to Brian he was the person who gave me Bill and Ben and um just you know so many people helped along the way it was that's why we're here it's just you know when you think back to those early that early year when I was so naive I knew nothing I still know <laughs> still learning every year but um it was just so many people came together to help in, in all sorts of different ways that made it possible to start. Yeah. So, so yeah. tell me about that first year. Um, because, I mean, in terms of what was the condition of the land like? What was your starting point? And I'm guessing that that first year was, it, it must have been just a lot of hard graft, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So I took over two acres of an arable field. And um, the land here is very... In some ways, it's great. It's very light. It's very, it's like a sandy loam type. It was near near a river, um, but also heavily, heavily farmed for decades and arable production, so kind of depleted. In the beginning, I obviously, for, for produce, I knew we needed um, a bit of indoor space to start my first seeds. And I found a straw, a derelict strawberry farm that was being demolished for a housing development not far. So we ended up taking down some polytunnels from there and moving them to the farm and building those. Um, so we could get some things like tomatoes in for the first season. Um, and that was an exciting time because I'd never built polytunnels before and had no idea what I was doing. Um, but we managed to get them on and they're somehow still still here. So <laughs> too bad of a job. Um, but yeah, we, um, you know, this, I guess in the beginning, I don't even think we, we just started really. And it was just very much kind of part of it was just this 
passion and naivety. Of, I, I didn't even have a market. I knew nothing about where I was really going to sell the produce to. I just was very motivated. And I had an amazing friend called Kyle who um, came over from the States um, who I'd been farming with over there. He joined me for like a few months in the first season and was just amazing helping, you know, plow the first field with Bill and Ben and our yeah. old John Deere two-way plow that we'd got from the Amish and um just sort of started really and i think when i think back to how we you know the, the first harvest that we had little bunches of this and that and the edible flowers and you know i i just took little sample boxes i googled 10 restaurants in london because i knew i wanted to work with chefs because i knew that they would probably like the things that we were doing we were growing and i wanted to grow sort of unusual exciting things um so i googled t- 10 restaurants and ended up, I just went there basically and dropped off sample boxes in the kitchen. And that's how I sort of started supplying chefs, which is just bizarre now because I probably turned up at lunchtime, which is when they're busy in service, like really annoying. Like, who is this random person <laughs> dropping off? <laughs> um, but miraculously, most of the people that I dropped off sample boxes to, they still work with us now. So Fantastic. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Where did the flourish brand come from? Talk us through the business side and sort of how yeah how, how you came up with the sort of concept for that. It, there was no concept. It was just <laughs> luck, I guess. Um, I think my mum and and came up with the word flourish for ages uh, ages in the beginning, and I wasn't sure okay. about it. And it was just so hard to think of a name because in the beginning I wanted it to be really connected to the fact that we had horses and um I think oh one of the like awful suggestions that we nearly went with was something like from hand and hoof and <laughs> luckily someone st- sounds like hand and mouth or like some awful disease <laughs> so we could have gone really wrong there um and, um but but also a friend of my dad, she um, designed the logo and actually the logo came from an old, the, the design of it was from, there's a, a place down the road from where we are, Cam Grain, that's like a large grain yeah, storage facility. <laughs> and they have an old fashioned logo that was like the beautiful writing with like a, an ear of wheat. And I was like, I want the Flourish logo to be a bit like that, but with nasturtium leaves on it. And so literally cam grain is like less than a mile from where i am and yeah, so yeah. we sort of took a bit of inspiration from their old logo um behind the business side there was like no um there was no strategy it was literally like word of mouth and having amazing you know from that first day going in with samples are are the chefs talk you know everyone knows each other in london and that group grew and um we end, ended up and still now have a, a quite a long waiting list of restaurants who want to work with us. And, you know, we, we're only at the capacity that we are. We can't sort of, we don't want to become a huge conglomerate that's growing for everyone. Um, yeah. But it's very m- much a natural thing. And I think we came about at a time when the idea of like fresh produce from a farm, there was a lot of interest in that. And I guess the authenticity of what we're actually doing, people coming out, being involved in, in it and, to be fair, I think the produce speaks for itself because things grown with, you know, care and attention to detail. And I have an amazing team that are really good at quality control and making things, you know, we care that what we produce and what leaves the farm represents the the work and the farming practices that go into it. Like I never want our stuff to be like the moldy, soggy bunch of beetroots at the back of the shelf that's organic, but looks really terrible. I always want our stuff to look to inspire people because it looks fresh and tastes amazing 
and that are you know the work that we put into looking after the soil and looking after nature is like speaks through our food and I think that that's what hopefully happens and that part of that is is why we've been able to keep going and keep farming in the way that we have yeah how did you go about building your team does this happen sort of over time or yeah it's been initially we had lots of amazing volunteers who came to learn about farming and lots of people who are interested in the horse aspect as well yeah um over the years we've sort of we don't have volunteers anymore we have an amazing team of people full-time part-time i mean with farming there's definitely like a, a seasonal aspect where we have people who join us for a season and then figure out maybe farming's not for them actually or maybe they want to go and do something different um and then we have like a core group of people who are sort of with us more long-term permanently. Again, there would be no flourish about the amazing people we have working on the farm, but it is also a huge struggle to find um, people to do this sort of work because it's very, very hard and it's difficult in lots of different ways. And I think that, you know, there's some very amazing aspects of this kind of work and this lifestyle, but there's also a lot of very you know hard things which don't always fit in with the normal idea of like work-life balance you know and the nine to five and things like that so we're trying very hard to try and build more you know a team that has as much balance as possible and we really respect people's holidays and weekends and try and build part-timers around full-timers and to, to create more of a longevity in what we're doing but it's a constant learning curve and I'm very grateful for everyone who's who's working away making it happen here yeah, I mean, it's literally the same conversation that certainly I have with pretty much whatever sector you're in, whatever you're doing in yeah. ag, it's all about the labour issue at the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, how much of that do you think is about perception and how much of that do you think is literally about the reality that there just aren't, aren't the people coming forward? I don't know. I have this, I talk about this every day. <laughs> I think that every farmer is obviously going to have a different perspective and it's a different situation. I mean, in some ways we're very lucky because we're near London because with our links to the restaurant scene, we have a lot of people who are interested in food and who come to us via that way. Um, and we've had lots of ex chefs who've been fantastic and have been amazing um, on the farm. But I think that it's also that thing about the rose tinted version of farming versus what it is. And that farming at least my farm can't pay probably enough for the <laughs> amount of work that's needed yeah. and figuring out efficiencies and figuring out how to make, you know, I'm constantly thinking about what can we do to make the work better and easier? Like, can we invest in a better piece of machinery? Can we and think of a better system? Like, how can we make the work faster? Because it, for us, the labor thing is about whether we're profitable or not. And if, if we can't do the work quick enough and if, if picking something takes too long, then we can't grow that crop because we're losing money on it. Because all of our, our sort of margins are basically based on how much labor is needed predominantly for the picking and packing part. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, for other, again, I'm speaking more for like produce operations, they would, um, you know, we've had lots of people suggest, you know, the seasonal worker scheme, which I have investigated and using agencies who can, can acquire people from, you know, other areas of the world to come and help. And, and the reason why that doesn't fit for us is because of how diverse we are, is we don't have like 100 acres of tomatoes where you're pruning the same tomatoes the same way for 100 yeah. acres and then you start again, or you're the celery in a, a field of like 50 acres. 
you know, the, our team needs to be trained and that takes a long time to get people trained on all the different, like what, 750 varieties we're growing and all the different ways they change throughout the season and the different practices and the different pieces of machinery and how we, you know, the winter projects and what's involved in them. And it's just so complicated that even, you, let alone that the laboring sort of like on the ground level of like the main sort of farm workers, let alone managerial people, it's very hard to find because there just isn't like the knowledge base. And so I don't know how applicable sort of my, or the, the issues that we're facing at Flourish are with other areas of farming. Um, although I hear that it's just a struggle everywhere. And, and I think it is partly, you know, people's expectations have changed. Like people want to have, more of a work-life balance and the, the when I started like the, the the jobs I had were like so intense like 14 15 hours a day like no yeah. money and I actually value that because it made me, made me learn and it made me grow and understand things and be better and want better for the people who um work for flourish um so I'm, I'm I value that actually that experience but I think that now people have different expectations and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's just very hard because to make that pay and um i i don't know i just don't have an answer i wish i knew because i wish i could fix this problem for yeah. not just myself flourish, but for everyone it's just and, and also part of it's about education and people are always like why don't you run more apprenticeship schemes like you need to be teaching and i personally can't teach because i'm trying to run the farm and so I think partly it's education, partly it's to be more of a exciting career potential for people where there's progression and options. And and again, how do you do that when it is a very hard industry and there are loads of unknowns and challenges and it's difficult to have access, I guess, to jobs and, and to land to eventually run your own operation if that's what you want to do. So it's so difficult and, you know, it's it's just interesting hearing other people's experiences and and how they are working with these same problems of, of not they're not being people to do that because the, the work the workers the people are like the most valuable resource they are the most important part of flourish of the people that work work here and it's you know it's very difficult to know the right the right way to navigate that yeah and there is, it's one of those questions isn't there isn't, there isn't really an answer um I want to turn towards um, the issue of, sort of uh, food nutrient density, I suppose, which is something we don't really talk about much on the podcast. Um, I'd like to more. What do you think of when we think of nutrient dense food? And do you think because there there is a big, it sounds like there's a beginning of more talk about this. How could we begin to shift our industry mindset in ag, I suppose, from from yield to nutrient density? Oh, it's so hard. Um, I think where we are with at, at Flourish and what we think about, it's very much to do with the idea of like a circular system in, in, as the sort of foundation of it, really, in that um, we see a lot of value in and can see it just not in terms of theoretically, but like in the actual produce in terms of it being growing better and being healthier and more resilient and therefore you know, again, I don't have scientific tests to back this up, I will just say, um, but to show that what we're doing is in the right direction in terms of really looking after our soil and building organic matter and having more of a long-term perspective of increasing the fertility of our piece of land. 
Um, and I think that, you know, there's all sorts of um, studies that have uh, come out and you, can, you see in the media now and again about, you know, how much, you know, you're supposed to eat X amount of spinach because of the iron content in it, for example. But like, again, thinking about like how much iron is going to be in that, how many minerals would be in that food if you're working with super depleted soils. And I think for us, we see as part of this whole, this sort of whole diet, full diet farm system and the sort of complexity of our system as a whole is that the produce does speak for itself. Like it is, has a much longer shelf life. It's clearly more resilient, healthy looking than the stuff you can get in the supermarket, for example. And I think for us, you know, the value of that is more like you can eat less of it and it has more benefits for you as a human being in your body. Um, but also health as a whole in terms of the impact on the whole system it, with with regards to the bigger picture of like consuming less, like less acres needed for those nutrients because the area that you're growing on is more nutrient dense in terms of it being healthier soil and therefore the the produce being hopefully more enriched with nutrients itself and we've been we're beginning a study with um someone at cambridge university actually who's going to be testing spin i talked about spinach a moment ago but it's because he's going to be focusing on spinach and the um the nutrient value of food grown in different systems so like hydroponic versus in soil and um this is just in the very you know beginning stages and obviously the study needs to be done and then all the data analyzed and i'm not sure how it would like roll out but it's very exciting for like our farm to be involved in something like that um which will hopefully back up or at least be a way of backing up some of the ideas that we're all talking about and that we're seeing on the farm in terms of the health and as i said like the shelf life and the quality of what we're growing from you know proper soil that is cared for in the best way that we possibly can Mm. it definitely it feels like one of those one of those things that is just going to gradually develop over the next few years and we, it certainly yeah. feels like we're, we're at the very early days of it now just a little more about our primary sponsor a plan rural they provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates this could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture so for more information visit aplan.co.uk forward slash rural that's aplan.co.uk forward slash rural it's going to move on to the challenges section I mean, we've already spoken about quite a few of them um but uh what for you would you say uh, is flourish uh, and your business what is one of the biggest challenges that you face uh, at the moment and, and and how perhaps does that relate to the wider farming sector well i can't not say climate change really or weather yeah. weather related issues um yeah. I think that's something that everyone's really struggling with. Um, and as I said, I mean, we've, we've been, this is coming into the sixth season of being here on this piece of land. And so in some ways, I feel like I don't know, you know, it's not that long actually to be in a place and to learn about the weather and what we should be expecting, especially since I spent a pretty significant amount of time in other areas before that where, you know, there were totally different patterns and totally different levels of expectations. But just in the time I've been here, I mean, like two years ago, we had a hailstorm in July and a massive flood where we had such significant crop loss that I had to shut the farm down over winter and it was awful. Then the following year, again, the drought and lack of water, the deep freeze we had this winter. I mean, I think it's just all the unknowns. It's the unexpected. It's, it's, 
it's and, and that leads into you can be doing your best you can be growing your massive amounts of green manures and your herbal lays and rotating livestock through your fields and building your soil and applying compost and doing everything planting trees and everything that you can but it doesn't like these things that we're all trying to do to be better stewards of the land and to like support nature and support these natural cycles in terms of water cycles and nutrient cycles and etc it's not like an automatic overnight quick fix and i think that's something really important is that we're all learning and, and it takes time to build healthy soil and soil that can withstand these changes and also it takes time for us as farmers to learn and to be able to observe things you know to be like okay or to, to have been exposed to some of the challenges, like that it's possible to have no rain for whatever, four, four or five months, and that therefore maybe we need to be irrigating our green manures, <laughs> which one never would have thought about before. Um, but, you know, all of these things, that's a huge challenge. And I think it's been really important in a way to be experiencing that now because it does really spur us, I think, to actually put our attention on trying to build more resilience and figuring out solutions and being a bit more prepared, hopefully moving forward to sort of be proactive rather than reactive. And I think, I mean, obviously we talked about the the labor sides of how how difficult it is. Um, but I just think it's it is an enormous amount of work and a really like a, a commitment. And you can put that in some ways as it being like a real sacrifice to do it. But I also think it is a real privilege um, to be farming and to be working with these cycles and to be kind of learning and understanding and kind of in some ways at the front line of where we are um, and so even though that's very very hard and it can be like very devastating to like lose crops it's also a privilege to be here i very i really think that genuinely yeah yeah and, and obviously there are challenges there clearly are but where do you hope to be in 10 years time what, what would be your sort of agricultural horticultural vision of hope for, 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 for the next <laughs> next chapter of flourish um oh it's so hard because I just have like a million ideas and I'm just constantly <laughs> over myself and doing way too much Alice helps in the office is always just like close to when I'm doing that too much um <laughs> you know I think one thing is I'm really excited we put lots of trees in we've planted them a, a big agroforestry um set up in one of our our 20 acre fields and I'm really excited to see these trees growing and coming into fruition to be able to finally harvest those crops and sort of see the benefits of, of those perennials within the system. Um, I'm hoping to do more of that in the future and more things like nuts and possibly, you know, other, other kinds of fruit like grapes and things that I'm really looking forward to experimenting with. I think big picture, just I'm looking forward to the farm maturing in a way, because I still feel like every year we're growing, we're expanding, we've got yeah. new people, new crops, new products. It's just like so dynamic. It's so fun and vibrant and like full of life. And I'm looking forward to sort of things coming into their own system, settling in a bit, growing a team that's with us a bit more permanently so that we can all move forward together. And I guess also I'm really looking forward to having more people be part of the farm in terms of enterprises as well so the i mentioned with the grain and, and the relationship with heron where where there's like a partnership there and i'd love to have we have a, a sheep relationship with a neighboring shepherd who he grazes his sheep on our uh, green manure so that we have livestock in the system but i'd love to do more of that i'd love to kind of give the opportunity for some other young budding farmers to 
do those sorts of partnerships that flourish, whether it's like pastured um, hens for eggs and for meat birds and, you know, whatever else, you know, mushrooms, anything. Um, I'd love to do more of that because I think it's a great way of, of having a platform for people to come into farming. And it's an amazing thing for us because we have a wonderful, strong customer base with lots of potential and lots of interest in more things. And I think it can work really well for both sides. So I think I hope that that will be very much part of what we do moving forward in the future as well. Oh, Alexa, thank you so much for coming on and telling us uh, about your story into into sort of the farming world, I suppose, but um, also about Flourish. And I'm going to say the line, I'm sure it will flourish into the future. Um, oh, so. <laughs> I've finished with the same two questions that I ask everyone at the end of the show. Uh, first is, Calixta, what is your message for the public? I think it's so important for people to support other farmers. And um, if you have an opportunity to buy eggs from a farm stand or someone rather than from a supermarket or to do a pick your own strawberry day with your children or something like that I would really I really would wish that you would do that and make that choice because I think there's the connection between people and farms is so important I think the ease and convenience of supermarkets and things is sort of you know a big difficult challenging thing to address and is very complicated but a small decision like that can make such a difference to the farmer and to your experience and you know that's I guess what I would say is try and buy local from someone He's doing something good with the land. And always the hard one to farmers. Oh, <laughs> oh that's so difficult because I feel like I have, you know, still so much to learn in. Um, and, you know, but I think it would be a similar vein to the, to the one that I said um, in that it's so important. I think farmers are so separated from society in many ways and, I think it's so important that in order for people to have exposure and to be able to make changes about their food choices and for there to be a more of a vibrant future for British farming, hopefully, it's also the responsibility for farmers to like try and open up and connect and reach out and to, you know, even if it's just participating in like an open farm Sunday, which I know for, for probably many people out there would be their idea of hell because it's sort of my idea of hell <laughs> having millions of people trooping around but I think that you know connecting and talking and explaining about the industry and being a voice being an advocate for you know being open about what's hard and how farmers need help and also the the amazing great things about being a farmer whether that's you know you never know if you'll inspire somebody young to get into it or whether you'll inspire somebody to, again, make better choices about what they're eating and support their local agricultural community. Um, yeah, it's just about, I guess, having those conversations and talking and trying to reach a little bit outside the box, trying to reach to the public if one can. And finally, uh, your recommendation for a blog, podcast or social media account to follow, and that can be farming or non-farming. Oh, my gosh. How do I choose one? I've thought about this and um, because it's just, I'm obsessed with podcasts. I love, I love listening. Right. It's a great thing to be able to do while you're working away um, on your own. Um, and I, I wanted to say that there's this podcast that was um, such a huge and important part of my 
sort of learning experience as a young budding farmer. And even now I still revisit these episodes. It's called the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And it was by a man called Chris Blanchard, who actually very sadly died. And um, his podcast, I don't know if they're available on all platforms because he's obviously no longer making them. But I highly recommend them. He interviews the most amazing farmers in the States who have incredible organic operations. He's the most articulate, thoughtful person with his questions. And he has such a beautiful way of making farmers be able to open up about what they do and their experiences and their methods. And it's, you know, a lot of the people that he interviewed I've met and um, heard about through his podcast. And I have a couple of friends who, who were interviewed and also people who are just massive inspiration for me in, in what they've done and what they've built with their farm. So I think that's definitely worth a listen if you yeah, if you have time to sort of, I don't know, find them out on the um on the internet. Really, really worthwhile. Well that's a great choice. Yeah, and that's that's a first for for this one. No one no one has said that before. So that's that's brilliant. We're gonna leave it there for today. But massive thanks to Blixner for coming on the show. If you haven't already Please like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Next week, I'll be joined by Devon-based new entrant, Adam Short. Uh, thanks again to Calixta for today and to our primary podcast sponsor, A-Plan Rural Insurance, for supporting the show. Please see the show notes for more information and for any links mentioned today. For now, though, I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a great week.